0: Have to speak up. Can you all hear me now? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, We'll do the. Oh, there we go. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Keir. Uh, Right. Okay. So I'm Jim Smith, and uh, I apologize to my panel members because their names didn't get into the catalog. So I actually have five panel members who are going to be doing the speaking. I'm just doing the moderating, so I've got the easy part. Uh, So, I'm going to go to my next slide, and you can read this while I'm talking. I just want to tell you a little bit of where the idea for this talk came from. Uh, About a year and a half ago, a friend of mine who is a general surgeon in Tanzania uh, could not get a new visa and had to leave the field. There was a rumor that the same thing might happen in Tanzania, which would be devastating to several different programs there if all the expats lost their visas. Then I thought over the last 35, 40 years that I've known people on the mission field, and I realized, when I, one time, the first time I realized this was about 1985 when I was at a CMDE conference in Malaysia, and there was a, a lady from India who was a surgeon who gave a talk, and she said, we have enough Indian doctors now, we don't need expat doctors, well, there were about somewhere between six and ten uh, doctors working in mission hospitals in India there, and there was a lot of angst and discussion about it afterwards. When I went back four years later, I think there was only one person left, and that person is going to be speaking this morning, and I think she was either the only or one of the few doctors that managed to keep a visa uh, and working in India. Uh, I had another friend who had started a hospital in Kalimantan, West Kalimantan in Indonesia and he started having trouble getting visas in the late 90s, early 2000s and his son who took his place cannot even go into the hospital when he goes back now. So that's a problem. Then I started thinking my experience with the Pan-African Academy of Christian Surgeons. It seemed like every time we'd have a board meeting there would be a program that would be on the border of being able to continue because somebody had to go home either for health reasons or family health reasons or their children's education. And so we always were struggling for at least one or two programs to try to find somebody to replace them. So uh, I think trying to re- make that, that transition from expats to nationals, being able to follow up if you have to leave, is a very important topic. So that's what we're going to discuss this morning. And we have five speakers First is Dr. Dr. Rebecca Naylor. If you want to hold your hand up so they know who you are. Uh, Rebecca is the person I talked to you about that was in India. She uh, was able to keep a visa and she's going to talk about that plus uh, transitioning uh, from her running a hospital to a national running a hospital. Second speaker will be Paul Geary who's the son of of, uh, my friend who had started the hospital in Indonesia. And he'll talk about how they did that transition. The next speaker will be Chris Jenkins, who's had experience in, uh, in East Asia, and the, uh, the uh, Central Asia and the Middle East. And he's going to talk a little bit about what happens if you transition before they're ready. And so that's another thing that we need to look at. Then Dr. Randy Bond, who was a dean at Hope Medical School in Burundi, will talk about one of the problems with finding people to replace him in that setting and finally but not least Dr. Thielander who's the chief medical officer for PACS will talk a little bit about how PACS has approached this and I'm hoping he'll talk about what the future is and give you some ideas what to do in the future so we'll start off first with Dr. Rebecca Naylor and I'll take me just a minute to transition slides.
1: So good morning everyone, it's a pleasure to have this opportunity to tell a story this morning. We all like stories. Um, I would like to introduce you to the Bangalore Baptist Hospital located in Bangalore in South India. Um, It was founded in 1973 by the Southern Baptist uh, then Foreign Mission Board, today known as the International Mission Board, and it had two primary purposes. Uh, health care for the poor, and planting churches. So uh, those two objectives were side by side and very much integrated from the beginning of the hospital. Um, I actually arrived there in 1974. It had been open just a few months, and so um, I've been through uh, its whole history, actually. Uh, and by the mid-1980s, Uh, The hospital had a very excellent, established reputation in in this very large city. Uh, The services, of course, had expanded in those first years. Uh, The hospital itself, when I started to work, was 40 beds. By 1985, it was 100 beds. Uh, Many churches had already been started through the ministry of the hospital. It was very effective in that objective. And I was the only foreigner remaining on the staff of the hospital. Um, so changes were occurring. Uh, we had lost missionary personnel. And from uh, 1980 onwards, we could not get any new visas. Um, we tried just replacement. Okay, we lost a pediatrician. Could we bring a pediatrician? No. So there were no visas. And um, generally, uh, we were experiencing in our mission board a nationalization of institutions and a divestment of ownership of institutions. So that was also occurring at the same time. And then financial sustainability as, uh, you know, running a hospital obviously is costly, and mission boards maybe are not able to financially sustain that. And so the conclusion uh, that the mission board came to, it was not my conclusion, uh, was to sell the hospital. Uh, One fine day, my supervisor, who lived in Singapore, came to make one of his visits. And sitting in my house, he suddenly looked at me with absolutely no warning and said, Rebecca, you're to go and sell the hospital. So uh, I was to go sell the hospital. And uh, so what I did was go all over India for two years uh, trying to sell the hospital. And uh, it was too expensive to buy. And people didn't understand why a mission board would be pulling out uh, what maybe the hospital was sick. And I said, no, it's not sick. It's very viable. Um, and so I didn't manage to sell it. And then what happened was that we began conversations. Actually, I had gone to the Christian Medical College in bellore I was on their governing board. I had gone to them in the first place, and they couldn't afford to buy it. But now we went back, and we began to negotiate a management agreement with Christian Medical College in bel And uh, it took well over a year. If you remember the 80s, we did not have computers, and uh, legal documents, uh, the mission board was involved, of course, in the U.S., in Richmond. Uh, Valor is in one state in India. The hospital was in another state in India. We had lawyers and courts and documents and all those things and no computers. And the signatures, well, you get the picture. Um, so this went on, and the goals in our negotiations the hospital should remain autonomous. Um, The mission board wanted to be relieved of liabilities, but they still wanted some role in the hospital. They had no other work in India at all except for the hospital. And uh, the property needed to be secured, 15 acres of very wonderful land, and uh, they wanted the name of the hospital to remain the same. And the financial viability of the institution needed to be secured. So that, those were the objectives of the negotiations of what to do with the hospital. By the way, I was the CEO uh, managing all this. Yes. So um, And they wanted missionary presence to be allowed, n- namely that I could stay. So what resulted from that was what we call a tripartite agreement. Uh, between Bangalore Baptist Hospital and Christian Medical College in Belor and the International Mission Board, the parent founder. And this model has uh, been pretty amazing, a very Christ-centered model in the midst of community with the three partners uh, equally sharing but with varying responsibilities. So the main points of the agreement... um, a, a legal entity was formed to hold the property. Uh, the mission board could not donate or sell the property to the hospital because of cost. Uh, even to just transfer the deeds as a gift would have cost 14% of market value, and uh, there, we couldn't, nobody could afford it. Uh, Christian Medical College uh, controls the governing board of the hospital, um, subsidy for operation was to be phased out over five years and the name was retained. And the result that was 1989, January 1, and we are now what 33 almost uh, 34 years down the road. Not one clause has ever been changed. All three partners are uh, very happy. The review comes up, and there's no discussion. They said, okay, agreed, we continue. And um, so all have benefited. And the partnership today, uh, the hospital is autonomous in its function. Uh, The governing board looks after budgets, new development, and strategy, appoints the CEO of the hospital and deals with personnel policies. And the IMB continues to come alongside in the areas of pastoral care. Um, So uh, these numbers are are post-COVID this past year. The pre-COVID numbers were higher. And uh, by March 31 of this year, we are sure that it will be above pre-COVID. They're very busy. Um, Academically, uh, this took off after the agreement. And now we have residencies and fellowships in 15 departments. Uh, The nursing institute is there. Allied health, uh, some of the departments even are offering master's degrees now and chaplaincy training. Um, And so why did it succeed? Uh, We shared common values. Uh, The mission and vision in the hospital were very firmly established, even in it had only been, what, 15 years of existence but it was very firmly established. Uh, We had committed national leaders in place in the hospital whom we were already preparing. Uh, Financial subsidy was reduced gradually, and there were no liabilities held over for any of the three partners, Um, and missionary presence would be there. I remained the CEO uh, for another year until I chose to hand over to my national colleague. Uh, He had been my associate CEO. We reversed roles, and I became the associate. And he was the CEO, and it worked extremely well. Um, And so the vision was transmitted. It's important to have a national accountability. It shouldn't be just the mission board determining everything. Uh, Handover was gradual, Uh, As the INB withdrew, missionary presence was able to continue. I was still there working. Um, Accept the consequences and trust God. Uh, It was not easy to go through this from my side or that of the national colleagues with whom I worked. They felt very abandoned. And I did too, but I couldn't say it. And I had to lead them to be, um, we can do this. We can do this. Uh, And we continue to be involved, to appreciate and encourage, um, and uh, we recognize that ultimately it's God's work. So um, it's important that the national entity taking over, uh, if they have different goals, it's going to be kind of a mess. Uh, The hospital, if it's dysfunctional when it's handed over, it will be a mess. If there's not enough finance, of course that can be a problem. And if you don't have local leaders in place, it's a problem. Uh, The founder's role, even today, uh, it is encouragement. It is to mobilize prayer support and engage on a personal level. I've been privileged. I've been physically away for 20 years now, but I still visit usually every six months when COVID doesn't happen, and It is a ministry of encouragement. Um, So there must be mutual trust and respect for a partnership to work. They share a common vision, uh, and the partners glorify God together. Uh, The contribution of the partnership to the vitality and effectiveness of BBH has never wavered at any moment. And the, uh, the grace and favor of God has clearly been the sustaining power behind a very special partnership. We realize that um, BBH could never have become what it is today had it remained with the IMV only. Uh, it, it just couldn't have happened. And what God has done in that place is truly amazing. So the conclusion of all three partners is... To God be the glory. Great thanks he has done. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Rebecca. One of the things I forgot to mention at the beginning was uh, with, uh, if you have questions, write them down. Uh, we'll have probably at least 45 minutes for questions and answers when this is finished. So uh, just to let you know you'll have an opportunity. Next speaker is Dr. Paul Geary, and he'll talk about uh, his experience. So, Paul, you can either move it here or. Thank you. Well, you. Morning. morning.
2: Good morning. So, I grew up in uh, Indonesia as the child of missionary uh, parents. Hey, my parents arrived in Indonesia in 1964. My father is a GP, trained in Minnesota, my mother a nurse, and uh, they took over a small rural clinic, very simple at that time, and God grew that clinic into a, a 100-bed hospital. By the 1980s, there were uh, four U.S. doctors, three U.S. nurses, there uh, was a hospital administrator, a foreigner. And um, I think a facilities manager person, and uh, the idea was to just keep growing this this facility. Uh, a new building, buildings had been built, and um, equipment was being established. Grants were coming in. It looked like it was a, it was a good program. But in uh, 1981, Indonesia at that point was about 40 years old, had been a uh, A Dutch colony for 200 years, and gained its independence in 1945. And the government then, at that point, began to get some traction and to put together programs and and long-term planning. Uh, It's a socialist government, a a parliamentary form of government, and and, uh, also um, nationalist. So there's not a particular religion at this time that's in control, although it's a majority uh, Muslim nation, the largest. And Muslim nation in the world by, by numbers, but still moderate. So the, uh, the bureaucratic socialists got together and said, uh, uh, all labor should be done by our own people. No long-term uh, labor workers should be foreigners. So uh, they declared that every institution in the country should be owned and managed by Indonesians. And that was in, in 1981. That was one of, the, one of the major crises at that time. And um, it seemed to the, to the staff that, that this hospital was probably going to close. Uh, the option of selling wasn't really on the table since uh, we heard that from Rebecca. This hospital was built in a rural location, so there was no, no uh, financial advantage to any business entity to consider purchasing something like this. Um, we'll go, go here. Uh, the, the, it was established initially, uh, very similar to, to Rebecca's story, to serve the poor. It's in a rural location, in a tribal group, and, um, and to work with church planters, so planting the church. And It was part of, of the tools that God used in that place to, to raise up a, a national uh, church association in that area. Indonesia is a nation. Uh, 17,000 islands at low tide. So uh, 12,000 you can are habitable, and you can imagine 275 million people, 740 different languages, uh, and and uh, five major religions. So it's it's a huge. It spans the same size as, as the U.S. from east to west. Uh, my wife, uh, is Becky, we're married 40 years. She grew up in Argentina as the child of uh, church planting missionaries. We're both third culture kids, uh, and uh, we joined the medical work at Bethesda Hospital in 1998. I wasn't sure that I was called to be a doctor. That was a journey that God took me on, but eventually I went back as an internist and joined my parents in the last five years of of their career, their 40-year career there in the final years of retirement, pr- approaching retirement. We went, we thought we were going to be there one year. It was a miracle we got in the country at that point. We weren't supposed to get a visa, but um, I think the, the bureaucrats were busy at that time. Indonesia was falling apart. Uh, Suharto was overthrown, and there was a lot of churn, and so our papers came through, and we got one year to, to come and, and work. So we can do a short-term mission for one year, we'll just come. And then it got renewed and got renewed. I'm back in the USA now, the last five years, supporting adult children and caring for aging parents. Um, so there were three things that, uh, or three or four things that happened after 20 years we were on the field. Um, the first thing is my wife said, said, um, my, my calling is changing and, and I'm not sure where I'm headed next. All four of my children have finished and, and high school, gone back to the U.S., homeschooled. I, that was my journey. She's an early child education uh, person, gifting. And I don't know my next calling, but I also can see that you are burned out. You are very tired. And you're getting toxic. Something has to change. Um... <clears throat> And then, um, and then my parents uh, in the U.S. began to have significant medical problems. My father was diagnosed with a terminal lung condition, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, a three-year lifespan, and, and my mother developed dementia. And then uh, sort of the, the, the crowning uh, indication from God that something needed to change, was going to change for us. Was the government uh, uh, medical department showed up on our front step? We got a. I got a phone call from the local health authority. Said we're friends with you. We like you a lot. We know you well. But some people are coming from from Jakarta. They don't know you from Adam. They know you on paper. They know you're a foreigner, and they know your papers are not in order. So you can decide where you want to be when they come and find you in the next half hour. <laughs> Uh, so uh, they did arrive on site. They were very very polite and very professional, but they basically said, your papers are not in order, things have changed the regulations have changed. We were aware of that and we had uh, my, my sponsoring Indonesian group had made great efforts to, to get to help me comply with the papers, but I was unable. And so I was under the radar for the previous six years uh, using, a kind of a half legal paperwork from the regional uh, health department. They said, "We know you. We'll vouch for you. Just don't ever pop up at the national level at the Capitol. And well, they, they finally did. Occasionally, did finally find me there, and they said, "You have to go home now." <clears throat> so we are now in the U.S. Uh, as many of you have been through in that transition, you know it's a time of grieving, a time of big change, loss, and uh, getting adjusted to a new life, and I thought, God, uh, you know, I'm, I'm done, and I'm going to transition, and this is going to be one of those stories. You hear the story about the, the, the person walking on the beach, you know, and the starfish all dying in the sun. You've all heard that story, baking in the sun. And, What can you do that makes a difference? You pick up the starfish and you throw it back and it makes a difference for this one and this one. Okay, well, that particular parable has to be modified because you're carrying a basket on your back. And you pick one up and it's missing a leg, so you have to carry it for a while. And you have to carry it for a while. And so you're throwing some back, but you're carrying a big load on your back as well. So transition doesn't turn, doesn't happen in a year or five years, it's it's dozens of years process, and uh, we we uh, that that's a very kind of popular I would say uh, theme that we transition uh, in a matter of five or ten years, and you'll have this full team that's ready to go. It probably does happen. There probably are, are some some situations where where that might work, but there's there's a lot of uh, a lot of factors in our in our case uh, the the foreigners who came ended up building this massive would you say highly complex multi-layered organizational system in the middle of nowhere so they could have built this large high-level institution in a small village in Alaska if you were going to to do a you know comparison for what we have in our country and then um, and then after the founder has to surrender it over, they say, "Well, who wants to run this very expensive, you know, multi-level, high-functioning hospital in the middle of Alaska that runs at a deficit of you know several hundred thousand dollars a month? Anybody open to take that over now?" <laughs> so, so you need to consider uh, many things in in, the, in transition. I'm now working as a part-time as a hospitalist, at community hospital in St. Paul, but I continue in partnership with this ministry. I thought I'd I'd be going back for a visit a couple times a year for a year or two, and then I'd be done. I just kept going back and going back. I'm still going back. I'm going to be going back in February. It just just came from a trip in September. So I go for a month at a time. My wife stays home and takes care of my 89-year-old mother, who is... uh, now in the final stages of, of very advanced vascular dementia and living in our home. This is my contact information. So it's in the, uh, in the PowerPoint that you'll all receive. This is my family. You can see my children suffering for Jesus in the jungle uh, back in 1998. And uh, how they are now, uh, we have three grandchildren, and these are our our four children. Our youngest, there in the in the picture on the left, uh, the little one with no shirt. He's the tallest one in the back. That's Carl. Yeah. Well, Bethesda Health Ministry's history in 1965. A rudimentary healthcare facility started in partnership with church planters in a remote rural location in the developing nation of Indonesia. This is the right place. At the right time for the right goal in 1965. But Indonesia has changed a lot now, and things have changed a lot. And this location is a very, very difficult place to keep running, as I mentioned earlier, especially to give to our national partners. Not necess- it's not necessarily they're not able, that there's not people who are able. There's, there's hundreds of high level uh, facilities, better facilities in Indonesia, but almost all of them are in the big city. Uh, It's very difficult to run something like this in a rural place. It's serving rural tribal farming communities and initially owned and managed by a foreign medical mission team. In 1967, they realized they were going to have to either close or recruit nationals, so they started a nursing school looking for management candidates, uh, nurses. Five national medical students were sponsored to finish medical school with poor outcomes. One came back. Uh, of the five, the other four w- transferred into government service. The one that came back was able to finish, I think, ten years of the fifteen-year commitment. In 1981, the ministry was growing. the The hospitals actually got up to 125 beds. Now it's 100 surgical services, a nursing school, a rural public health outreach. We were having 100,000 uh, outpatient visits a year and several thousand surgical cases a year. And at that time, the government mandated the ownership and handoff to a national nonprofit. And God raised up a group of, of Indonesian, uh, high-level Indonesian folks, uh, medical doctors, government uh, officials. Uh, there was a military general, some other other people that God raised up to take ownership. And so, full ownership was handed over to this Indonesian nonprofit in, in accordance with the national regulations. And in, in the first uh, 15 years, there was a lot of, of uh, there was a lot of conflict and self-interest um, among the ownership group, and that's when I arrived on scene. And so it took took me another I had to wait another about 15 years for most of those people to die,
3: <laughs>
2: and uh, and then replace them with nationals who had a real calling and had no need or interest in, uh, financial interest in, in the uh, organization. They had a, uh, a calling and a, and a desire to, to see it succeed in ministry. In 1985, we expanded the recruitment to GP candidates for specialty training. So these were general practitioners who came to the hospital as Christian GPs fresh out of medical school, and about one out of 20 would say, I want to I stay another year, I want to stay another year. And then they say, send me to be a specialist. And that is now how we staff and and have long-term specialists. And those are good outcomes. In 1995, the government mandates all health care workers must be nationals. 2004, the founder retires after 40 years of service. Now in 2010, 100 national nurses are on staff, eight national specialists, 10 national GPs, about two and a half million dollars a year of, of uh, funds are turning over. In 2017, the health department terminated the work visa of the single remaining foreign medical doctor. That's me. So at present, the national board continues in the process of handoff and adapting to a rapidly changing healthcare environment. So Indonesia is on a accelerated pathway right now as a country. To to transition itself from a uh, really a a nation just fresh out of uh, colonization to a country that's really approaching significant advancement. And um, they're making lots of of major changes. I continue as a part-time representative of the historical partnership with the USA Church and, and the U.S. Mission Agency. So for the foreseeable future, I, I am willing, as, as the Lord leads, to continue in that role, and that's, that's uh, a part of, of the story here about talking about transition. I would say in closing that, uh, at least for us, you can see transition is a long-term process and that uh, there's a lot of moving parts, and it's not necessarily in our case that there aren't qualified, capable brothers and sisters in Indonesia to, to do all the kinds of functions that we have at this hospital, but that the hospital location and the service model and the operational funding is the big challenge for uh, the, the next phase of, uh, of going forward. So, thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Paul. So that's an interesting, uh, different uh, approach. I can't walk and chew gum at the same time, so I have to do this without talking. Okay, so our next speaker is going to be Chris Jenkins, and he's going to talk a little bit about uh, are they prepared to take over or not and see some of his experiences.
4: Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, as Jim said, I'm Chris Jenkins. I'm a faculty member with, uh, in his Image Family Medicine Residency Program in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, we are a Christian program and uh, we are, are, one of our overarching goals is to train doctors to see medicine as a ministry opportunity wherever the Lord leads them, whether it's domestic here in the U.S. or overseas internationally. And we just want to give them a good foundation uh, to, to respond to God's call wherever that may be so that they can adapt to the local situation. And by the way, we're on the second floor if any of you are medical students looking for family medicine residency, so please come by and visit us. So um, we... Um, have probably, uh, over the years, have had 50 to 60 of our graduates in long-term missions. And I'm using that term very loosely. Anywhere from two years to 30 plus years, maybe half of those that number is still in the field in one place or another. And a big part of what we do is medical education missions. We want to train our doctors to be able to train local people to raise the their level of care that they can give uh, to, a, uh, to a higher skill level and improve the, uh, the health of the community as a result of better health care. So, uh, many of the doctors that we have overseas right now are doing that uh, in very different locations, uh, very different settings, and each each program is different from the others, uh, in both in size and in the scope of what they can do, what the model uh, general practice is usually called general practice in most countries we're working in, uh, what the model is, how many years it takes to train them. But the goal is, is to, uh, to train local doctors, again, so that they can raise the level of care, uh, provide good health care, and, and let them loose, you know, let them loose to practice. Uh, but we also want to, where it's possible, replicate the initial model. Uh, the initial team comes in, sets up a model, sets up a training program, uh, and uh, gets patients coming and uh, does the training. And, and in many places, it's been very successful. And in the example I'm going to be referring to, it's an Asian country, uh, they were very successful in training local doctors and doing outreaches, ministries of various kinds and as part of the training, like to orphans nursing home patients and uh, uh, village work, uh, villages that didn't have much health care. They are very successful in reaching these places and seeing many people come to the Lord. So, it was a good thing, and of course they wanted to replicate that model. Now... Uh, wanted to create new self-sustaining clinics that would also continue training doctors and continue these outreaches of various kinds in different places. And uh, the country they were in, they couldn't be very involved in church planning, but they were doing a lot of evangelism and discipleship, and that would contribute to the church in, uh, you know, eventually. And eventually we wanted to transition to local leadership. It wasn't an immediate uh, goal, It was something, but it was something we had uh, in our minds to do eventually as, as people were ready. So as always, uh, the the challenge of timing is a real issue. Uh, You know, you hold on to something too long and too tightly, whether it's in this country or another culture, and you can stifle the development of local people and the development of their work and their ministries. Uh, But if you let go too soon, you can set people up for failure because they're not ready to take the responsibility of what it is that you've been running and want to hand off to them. This is true both spiritually and medically. We can... Uh, disciple people but not allow them freedom to develop their own ministries. Uh, they don't grow in their own personal walk with the Lord and their ministry ability. Uh, and you can let them go too soon and they uh, crash and burn by making mistakes that they uh, in handling things they weren't ready to handle. But medically this is very true as well. And, th- and I'm going to focus on the medical side of this uh, as opposed to the spiritual side. Um, you know, medical... Institutions, whether they're outpatient department clinics or hospitals or teaching institutions, are very complicated things. Uh, there's a lot of layers of responsibility and a lot of logistics and details that need to be understood to run them to run them well. And you don't want to put someone at, on a place of running it that's not ready any more than you want to have a surgeon, and, and Keir could attest to this, uh, operate on you when they haven't finished their training or they're not ready to operate independently. So you want a surgeon to operate on you that's... Uh, certified in their specialty and they're ready to roll and you, you know you're going to have a good outcome. Uh, but that's true for administrators as well, whether they're medical administrators that come from a medical background and taking over a hospital, uh, or, or they're purely administrators, that <coughs> you don't want to hand off a ministry to someone that doesn't know the ins and outs of running the, the, the ministry, or whether it includes a medical component or not. In our, our case, it does. And uh, it can be very complicated. So we got ahead of ourselves, um, our mission team was fairly good size uh, for, the, for, the, for the years. Was going. This is a much smaller model than Paul's or Rebecca's. We were not a big hospital. This is a small clinic uh, training uh, a limited number of people at a time, maybe anywhere from five to ten at a time at any given year, with a, with a doctor staff of probably a half a dozen faculty uh, that were foreign. And then as, as people went through the program, local doctors would become junior faculty and, and learn how to be faculty as well. So a much smaller scale. But uh, we we were seeing the success of this model. Uh, And we were in this country at a time when general practice was new. And the government wanted us there because we were uh, demonstrating how general practice could work and how to train and giving them a model for it. And we had good relationships with local medical universities. Uh, So we had a lot of favor in, in what we were doing. And we had uh, local Christian doctors come alongside who were very excited about what we are doing, not just because of family medicine, but because they were seeing a model of, of medical ministry that they didn't really have available for them to look at in their own context. And so they were, they, were, they were young believers, they were medically trained in their country, they were eager to help and be part of this, and so we were including them in not just being trained, but also as faculty and helping administrate in, at various levels. But again, we got ahead of ourselves. We wanted to replicate... And uh, the team wanted to. And, and uh, so one of these young doctors w- was chosen and asked if they would like to head up the new enterprise. And this person agreed and wanted to and was eager to. And, and uh, some of us had some questions, whether it was time for it or not, but we, as a group, we went forward. And, and we had to take responsibility for what happened. You know, We, as a, as a local team, and I, I'm a board member, I wasn't living there, uh, but I was involved in the process. Uh, have to take responsibility for putting someone in, in a place of responsibility too soon. Um, and again, this was a complicated ministry. It was, uh, was a clinic uh, and with some inpatient care. Uh, and running a clinic can be a full time job in and of itself. It was an educational enterprise, and anyone who's been involved in residency training knows that being running a residency is also a full time enterprise. You know, have to work with your faculty, develop curriculum, rotations, uh, evaluate your. Uh, tra- trainees, test them and all that kind of stuff and it's a full time job and our financial situation was a bit complicated as well uh, the initial organization was a non-government organization, an NGO that uh, was there on an educational grant, not a grant but a uh, visa so to speak from the government they wanted what we had but we were based in a small local hospital that wanted us there as well and they were funding our training to a certain extent They gave a, they contributed every month a certain amount of money and we also had uh, entered into a partnership with an international, a secular international for-profit chain of international clinics. And they had already had clinics within this country, and they saw that there was a bunch of foreign doctors there they were Western-trained, and they said, well, well, this would be great. You know, we, we have an international clinic. We can actually have international doctors in our clinic here. And uh, so we agreed, and they, uh, uh, they ran the uh, administrative part of that part of the clinic. And uh, out of the proceeds, the revenue that came in, contributed another amount of money to our training program, in which we used not only for training the doctors, but also for these outreaches to villages and other places that we were working. So it was a complicated setup with many moving parts, and, um, but we went ahead and we uh, uh, registered a new organization as a for-profit uh, business, a medical business, which is what the government would want. And, uh, and also, which, if we are going to replicate further, it, it couldn't be as a foreign NGO with foreign doctors and all this kind of thing. So it was a for-profit uh, business, medical business. But to, to keep a distance between the... And this isn't a country where uh, there are missionaries, but you know, they frowned on us for being very aggressive or sharing very much. And so we wanted to keep a little distance between ourselves and this uh, local thing so there was no legal connection between the two organizations. So legally, they could take this and run with it however they wanted to, if they wanted to. And so this young gentleman uh, was placed as in, the, in the role of the CEO. Um, and uh, we had a good relationship, but we still do. Uh, and so although we couldn't legally say, you're fired or whatever like that, or, or say, no, you can't do that, he was responsive to input uh, to a certain degree and um, uh, did the best he could. Well, we lacked a clear line of accountability. As I said, there's no way to gracefully help him to step back once it was apparent that he wasn't up to the task uh, and uh, continue training rather than just letting him go. Uh, We didn't want to remove him legally. I mean, he's a friend, he's a a, a fellow Christian. We didn't want to go to that point of trying to do something legally. But anyway, the long story short is, uh, this was a young person who we had not prepared adequately for all the ins and outs of all these moving parts, and mistakes were made. And the ministry stopped growing. Uh, initially, that was the initial thing. And uh, but then it also we also he also made some mistakes in, in with our partners, our financial partners. And de- and demands were made on the uh, secular clinic franchise about the handling of money that they were not willing to go along with, and so they broke the partnerships. So we lost that stream of money coming in. And then about a year later, the hospital said, "Well, you're not." generating revenue for the hospital because you know we're seeing a lot of poor people and all that kind of thing. So you can stay here and keep doing what you're doing but we're not going to fund you either. So we lost both streams of money, uh, of income for the training. As a result, the, fact, the number of trainees we can train uh, was diminished. Uh, we lost staff because we couldn't pay salaries. It's still going on but at a much lower level of, efe- of efficiency and fruitfulness. Of course, the pandemic didn't help either. Uh, and it's just kind of you know, just kind of uh, muddling along going forward. So, again, we, we as the leadership of that group have to take responsibility for it. Uh, and um, uh, the outcome is on us, not on him. He just wasn't ready for it. So I, I guess some of the learning points would be be realistic. You know, if, if what you're handing over to local people is very technical in nature, requires a high degree of professionalism, keep the standard. Because uh, if you don't, Uh, you're going to set them up for failure. Like, we are a residency in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, We have 10 for class, 30 overall. And they are required to meet certain uh, mandatory goals before we can uh, graduate them. And we can't just graduate people because they hit the three-year mark and say, okay, you're ready, when they're not. Because it's it's an ethical issue. We can't just release people onto the public who thinks because they finish a residency that they're, qualified doctors when they're not if they're not ready we may do some um, uh, uh, extra work for them keep them on a few more months so they come up to speed or we may not be able to graduate them all because it's a, it's a danger to the community to have a doctor who can't take care of them well and it's a danger to the individual who may end up in malpractice suits and damage their career so you don't just put somebody in a position because it's time or there's no one else or whatever so keep the standards uh, train your leaders as you go uh, always be training, uh, give them opportunities to learn the ins and outs of whatever it is. And, and family medicine residency training, or any, any, any specialty training, is, is, is complicated. We have what we call graduated responsibility within the tra- among the trainees. In other words, a first-year resident only gets a certain amount of responsibility, and they're overseen by second- and third-year residents, by faculty, by other specialists. They're, they're under a microscope all the time. Second years get a little bit more freedom. And they are overseeing the first years, but they're being overseen by the third years and the faculty. Third years get the most freedom because they're close to uh, graduating and they've got a lot of experience. So less supervision, but there's still some accountability. And then finally they graduate. So you know, train your people well. Uh, watch them how they grow. Give them uh, a graduated responsibility, increasing responsibility as they're able so that when it comes time to graduate and they're really ready to take over, they are ready. Uh, don't give them more responsibility than they can handle too soon. And hold things lightly. And by that, you've, you've heard a couple of good examples of um, not uh, not leaving when they thought they were going to leave. Uh, having outside uh, factors influence when they had to leave their, their post. Um, your project, whatever it may be, whether it's training people or doing a hospital or whatever, may be a 20- or 30-year project to hand it over. Uh, but you never know when you're going to have to leave, whether it's for health issues or financial issues or visas aren't renewed or pandemic sweep, sweep through. Uh, we had um, one program that we were involved with in East Africa that uh, the whole team had to leave when the pandemic hit and they had not been able to reconstitute and go back. Although they, they, did, they had trained local faculty that were able to pick up and continue the program, although it's been a real struggle for them. Uh, some of the uh, team members that had to leave have gone back for short trips to encourage and to support and to advise and just to help out. But there have been a couple of countries where they had to leave, and they weren't able to go back, and the program stopped. Uh, I'm thinking one in Africa, uh, visas weren't given. They showed up at the airport coming back from a furlough and said, sorry, you can't come in. You're no longer welcome. And all the faculty had that experience. Uh, another place, in, also in Asia, uh, where visas were no longer issued, and even for people from local nearby countries couldn't get in to do the teaching, so that program kind of went down. And we had a program in Afghanistan that had been going on for 10 or 15 years that just shut down with everything else a year ago when the country fell apart. So you never know when you're going to have to leave and, and what the circumstances will be that will require that. So always be training. You may not... Maybe your project takes 15 years to really do well or 20 or 30 years to get a hospital uh, you know, in, in place. But always be training. And you may have to leave way before um, they're ready to take over. I mean, that's just the way things go sometimes. But always be training so that when you do have to leave, whether on your schedule or someone else's schedule, they have the best opportunity, the best chance of succeeding at least. Um, and I've, I've focused on the medical part, you know, the, the running institutions and that sort of thing, but always be training spiritually, of course. Now, we do discipleship, we do evangelism, and depending on the country, we start with evangelism, if trainings are or already person we start with discipleship. But if you've done that part of it, even if the hospital doesn't persist or the program doesn't persist, you will spiritually have built the kingdom and that part of it will continue on. So always be making sure that the people you're working with, assuming they're Christians, are learning how to feed themselves spiritually, how to share their faith, how to be obedient, um, how to run Bible studies or whatever, how to, how to build the kingdom themselves so that when, when you have to leave, they're ready to continue on in the kingdom and then, then you, will be, uh, you will have success. So anyway, um, be realistic. Uh, know that you may have to leave at any moment. Uh, always be training, always be ready, uh, having a goal of eventually to transition to local leadership uh, in one way or another. It uh, doesn't mean you have to leave when you, like with, with Rebecca, it doesn't mean that you have to leave if you transition. You can still be there in some kind of role helping out. But always have the goal of, of, uh, in mind of transitioning to local leadership and you never know when, you, when you're when going to have to go. So that's it.
0: Uh, so now we're going to uh, switch a little bit. And Dr. Randy Bonds who is going to talk about being involved with a Christian Medical School in Burundi, and I'll let him give you the details.
5: So, my story is going to be that God was there before I got there, God's there after I left, and whatever five step plan I had, God was laughing about it the entire time. <laughs> so, um, so, it's like the transition is going to happen whether it's how I planned it or how God planned it. So we'll we'll, we'll talk about that with us. So, I don't know if you know Burundi. It's a tiny little country, twin of Rwanda. Um, Same ethnicity, same struggles. Where Rwanda had 100 days of genocide in 1994, Burundi had 12 years of civil war up until 2005. In 2013, not like India at all. Um, So the question is, do we have enough doctors? Burundi had 12 million people. So think of Ohio Plus, okay? There were 300 doctors for those 12 million, and 270 of them were located in Cincinnati. Okay? The rest of the entire country had 30 physicians. So um, as a result of the, the struggles in Burundi, um, and some of the people in the Free Methodist Church there had been trained in the United States, they started in 2003 a university patterned after, if you know, Seattle Pacific or Azusa Pacific or Spring Arbor. Okay. They, they wanted to start a liberal arts university. And facing this dearth of doctors, the government said, can you start a medical school? So they started a medical school in 2006. They graduated the first 12 in 2012. Um, and one of them went with Cure um, in that group, and he's finished with PAX. But, so we're coming into a situation. So they said... There were these eager people who you see pictured there, and some of you know them as the McCropters who had been in Kenya, looking for a place to be. So they came to Surge, and Surge sent them and sent my wife and I to Burundi to be two teams to build up the university. So their their goal was to redevelop a 1940s one-doc mission hospital in the interior of the country um, and turn it into the major teaching hospital for the university. Which had another hospital in the capital, and the university itself was in the capital. And my my mandate was to go and draw American professors to all aspects of the university. So the the, the university has its own like motto. The motto of the university is facing African realities, and you'll see some of those as I talk. It was it was African founded, African run. Um, there were five thousand students by two thousand and fourteen, in four major schools with. 30 majors or something. Uh, But limited facilities, you can see the building there. Um, And most of it was adjunct professor based. The university could not afford faculty, so they would borrow faculty from the National University to teach this class or that class or anybody who was qualified. Um, And that especially happened in medicine. And I got there in early 2014, and this was the medical school faculty, and the dean is there on um, your right. Uh, She said... I'm tired, Um, I'm going to have my fourth child, she's an OB-GYN, Um, and I want to step back. So the the man who was in charge of the university at the time said, Randy, you're new here, you've had a 30-year academic career in the United States, would you like to be the dean? And of course I said, yes, out of flattery, not understanding
3: (laughs) what that meant. Um,
5: uh, So, um, and at that time there were, I didn't know even the numbers, 400 medical students of which um, 80 were on um, the level of clinical rotations, but another 80 were supposed to air those clinical rotations in the next year, and no one had talked about where to put them. So I I know why the dean was retiring. It's like, okay, so you have to place 80 people on 30 different clinical rotations and rotate them for the next three years. So it was a different question. So I took the job, and I found out that it wasn't quite what I had in mind, um, so I thought that I was my own secretary. I ran my own copies. I couldn't sign my own correspondence because I wasn't authorized to commit any money for the university. And I had no budget. I had to take my, my proposed letter to the rector. He had to say, your French is not good. Go back, fix it. Bring it back to me um, to sign. So it's, it's, uh, it's, y- you get the idea that what I thought... I mean, I thought I would be highly competent American reproducing highly competent American skills in Burundi's to carry on a highly-confident American-style hospital. I mean, what else would, would you do? Okay. So, um, so, but I'm realizing that's not exactly how it was playing out. And at that time, like I said, we had 400 students in a seven-year degree program. Three years of that was clinical. Um, they were all, found out that, that every class, because of this adjunct-professor issue, they were like, okay, so this guy couldn't teach anatomy too. So we put that in the third year. But uh, we're hoping that some people will teach it then. But we did move like rheumatology to the first year. Is that okay? Yeah. I mean, so that they all—they were all a year behind. But it, it was, yeah. the curriculum was just changed. Um, and uh, and and in 214, we were going from 85 to 168 students on clinical rotations. 2015 um, there was an attempted coup, and that meant that there, and our university was. There were five neighborhoods in Vujibur. So, ethnically, the capital was predominantly one group, and the rest of the country was predominantly another, and I was in the capital. Um, And five neighborhoods in the capital were considered rebellious, and it turned out that our university was right between two of them. So, it wasn't a popular place for adjunct professors or students to come. Um, And that changed some of the dynamics. So, I'm, I'm introducing African realities. Um, just to set up. So what could I do? What can I do? I learned a lot of things about this idea of transition because I came with the idea that I would reproduce myself, um, that you know, I would find the right person who could learn the right <laughs> skills and do the highly effective things that, as an American, I was trained to do. But I found, first off, I couldn't solve problems with money. I mean, what other thing do I have to offer? I mean, I could pay anybody anything to get stuff done. But there's like, no, you can't do anything that wouldn't be a budget situation that we could sustain. So you can't spend your money even to hire a secretary. So I couldn't hire staff. I couldn't negotiate directly with hospitals. I couldn't go to a hospital who I wanted to place students and say, let's make a deal. They're like, no, the university has to negotiate and we won't be able to do it for three months. So that's reality. Um, but I had to do it the African way. I couldn't fill positions with the person I thought was the best because... Um, in that country, once you have six months on the job, you have it for life. So if I wanted to make an assistant dean, that person would be assistant dean for life. So I couldn't pick that person. I couldn't pick a successor. I couldn't pick a cadre of people or hire professors because that, that's giving jobs to people. And importantly, our partners, having come out of ethnic conflict for 12 years, um, were concerned about advancing people who had been neglected for the last 30 years. The first genocide in Burundi was in 1972. Um, so there were people who felt oppressed for the last 30 years, and they wanted to advance those people, and they wanted those people to have time to be prepared for the leadership positions that we were building at the university. So I didn't, I couldn't, I, and, you know, this is, I'm like many of you, I can't tell who's one ethnicity or another. Um, <laughs> But you know, there's a there's a suspicion that I'm favoring one because their English is better or because they're more like me. So I'm I i do not even know who I'm supposed to to not talk to or deal with. Um, so that's that's the reality. Um, so these are these are the, you know some of my limitations. And I, I couldn't reproduce myself. But what could I do? What what could I do? So I could learn to minister from weakness and and choose. To be humble and, and be my own secretary, and, and and do the things that I had to do, because whoever was going to take over that position had to have the same resources and skills that I was going to be forced to. That doesn't say I couldn't bring in projectors. Doesn't you know? I mean, there's things I could do to make things better for me and for them. But I couldn't make major decisions about building programs. Um, but I could I could start to build systems that would be independent of me or the person, like for quality, the same thing that Chris just said. So like we built systems for evaluating students for promotion rather than just saying who can and can't be promoted. So that we could have some objective criteria to protect them. We we had to um, because of this history of ethnic suppression, we had to find a way to bring people along. Well, we had to find ways to to say, okay, we need to spend more time with some people. We can't just pass them along. But to build those systems in to make it work, um, and I could serve as a model of of both um, a service and quality by serving myself and being available. But also, this is this is not going to be a surprise <coughs> to you um, that uh, I was frustrated. I don't. I don't think that I was always on my best behavior. Um, So there were a lot of times I had to repent, and I repented publicly to my students, and I had to ask their forgiveness. Um, Which, if you've worked in some countries in Africa, for a man to do that, it was really different for my students. For me, as a Christian, to say I need to repent and tell you and ask you to forgive me uh, as a a public statement to a class of students. that, that that had an impact I didn't expect in terms of ministering for weakness in terms of how to, to reproduce yourself the other thing I could do is I could focus on students and I invested in students I said look there's the students are the future they are they're going to be there when I'm gone um, and I'm creating them for the Burundians. so I scholarship funds helping students all kinds of things students were my focus um, and and because even whoever... I also found out that I really couldn't influence who was going to replace me. There were several people I lined up to replace me, and for different reasons culturally or their own background or things in their lives, they dropped by the wayside. So I, I was like... And the person who did ultimately do stuff was never in the country when I was there. He was off training in neurology. So I wasn't like able to do my, the same kind of investment in people, but structures and building structures... While we're doing things up there, and, and the um, the, uh, the government, um, I'm sorry, the uh, same time we're making advances up at our teaching hospital, we're reducing the hospital that we had in the town. We had a little hospital in the town. I saw the numbers from India. I mean, we had a hospital that we didn't think was anything, and it was like women and children and we had 5,000 deliveries a year. Um, that's just the capital, and that was like not, not even our teaching hospital anymore. <laughs> the one out cut is smaller, but it's but still the same. It's just different. But, so, I didn't know what the future would be or when I would be, but I knew that it seemed, God was telling me it was time for me to step back from being the dean and let that be filled by someone who was African because I knew that if I didn't do that, it would never happen. It would never be, it's just too easy to take free labor and not appoint somebody to an expensive position they could have for life. So I I stopped being the dean, and, uh, but... um, but in terms of what that thing is, so I told you there were 300 people for 12 million residents in 19, uh, 2013. But when we finished, when we, in, in 2000, the graduation in 2020 completed 300 total graduates we had by that point for this country. And they're spread out all around there. So, and 44% of our graduates were women, very different from the government university. And and these people are serving patients throughout Burundi and beyond, and some are still in training. Um, And two years after I left, so I left thinking I would go back in another role, but for health reasons for my wife, we couldn't go back, although I'm going back tomorrow for three weeks to teach another (laughs) class. Um, But not run anything. Um, So there's an African dean now and a growing faculty, um, and he's not like me. But the systems that we have in place are still being followed for student promotion, evaluation, the educational system, the teaching. we restructured things. Students are on time. They're getting the classes they should have in sequence. Um, and, the, the, now, again, that's not me, that's God. Because, because of all this troubles with the, the, the violence, um, our medical school class went down to 20, which is what, way more manageable than having 120 per class. And they're all up at Kibuya now for their clinical time. So class size became manageable. Uh, progress is on time. Um, and last week, the EAC came to evaluate all the medical schools of Burundi, and none of them passed. But ours was the highest. That's all I can say. That's all I can say. So, um, so God goes ahead of us. God does what he wants through us. But it's his victory, and our availability is the way that he's going to show how to make it work. So that's my pick. Oh, and I guess I would say one of our students, I'm out of the box, but uh, (laughs) even now in Florence Wendy's session, it's parallel with ours, one of our student graduates is presenting how they have decided to reproduce a clinic for the poor in Bujumbura. Eight of our students are doing that.
0: Okay, our last speaker is Dr. Keir Theander, and he's going to wrap everything up and tell us what the future should be.
6: Thank you. Randy, I noted, I think maybe it is good to be the best of the worst. I don't know, is that? I don't know. I'll just let that one go. So I, I don't have a whole lot of new things to tell you from what you haven't already heard. Uh, but to lead into the discussion, just some things to think about, some thoughts. I'll start a little bit to tell you uh, just a little bit about PACS. I'm going to put a shameless plug in for 5.15 tonight. If you want to hear more about PACS, um, you can come to ATCR, I've got to look at my name tag, what one is it? Uh, 200, uh, ATCR 200, right on the other side of the, of the, uh, of the lobby there. So just, to, just briefly, I'm going to talk a little bit about PACS and what, we, what our current reality with national leadership is. And then a couple of questions to lead us into the discussion about nationalization. And what is that anyway? Why would you even do it? And we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that and then some other considerations, just some thoughts. So you're not going to get to hear like the other speakers have told you their experience. I'm not going to tell a, a whole lot about that. Uh, that's. Uh, but I think it will lead us into a discussion about what you might be doing or what you're thinking and some questions. So this is PACS Reality. Um, we started actually way back in the 1990s, but if you look at just 2014 through 2022, just the growth in number of national faculty that we have, and I will tell you that wasn't necessarily a goal. Not opposed to it at all, but it wasn't a goal. Think about that one. So let's talk about what is nationalization anyway. Is it this guy, Moses, who's working in Malamulo, Malawi, Maybe. But he's actually Ugandan. So is that nationalization? I don't, I don't know. Or is it this guy Africanization? Maybe that's the word. <laughs> but should we be seeking that? I, that's a question for us, right? Or this guy Lindjilum, who's Ethiopian, working at Kubuye Hope Hospital, teaching, where which you just heard about from Randy. Or this guy Fadipe, who's Nigerian, but works in Kenya. I, I don't know. Is that nationalization? Should we be seeking nationalization? That's really a question. So who's a national anyway? I think sometimes the nationalization brings us to an us and them. If we're using the word they and us, maybe we need to reconsider what we're actually what we're actually talking about. So that's something to to put in our brains, right? So is any African leader considered nationalization? I mean, we have 38. Actually, we have 38 of our graduates, but we have 24 other Africans that are teaching in our programs? Is that nationalization? Although we didn't train them, they're teaching in our programs. So I, I, I don't know. These are just questions for us to discuss, right? Um, or is it just that you're not Western? Does that mean that's nationalization? That's really a question we would have. Or we look at this logo that we have, and some have said, this is racist. I would ask you the question, you tell me who's teaching who. Many of our graduates are teaching medical students and residents and even visiting faculty who happen to be white, but our graduates are all black. So you tell me who's teaching who and that. Right? So we have to think maybe a little differently. What are our goals and our motivations? So this is 2 Timothy 2 2 Scripture is always a good place to go. And so this is what we can look at. These things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses and trust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. I don't see the word national in there anywhere. (laughs) I think it's the people who are around us. We should always be doing this training and teaching and entrusting to reliable people. So just some random thoughts uh, that, again, getting the conversation started. You don't need to hear more about other experiences. You already heard four. God, God works in all kinds of ways. But... We already have a question? Online. An online question. No. We'll, we'll, we'll be there. We'll get there. Um, so, cultural diversity. Today's reality for PAX. The body of Christ is diverse, right? The body of Christ isn't a bunch of little homogeneous bodies. It's not the body of Christ. That's not what heaven's going to look like. We're not all going to stand in our own little corners. At least I don't think so. I think we're all going to be together. So is nationalization just another way of putting each of us in our own little corners? It's a question I ask. I'm not saying it is. I just think we need to reflect on these things and be serious about what is and why are we doing what we're doing. Some of our graduates are program directors. That's great. Employing graduates as program directors does lead to different cultural approaches in training, leadership, and administration. It's different. It's not wrong. It's just different. But the principles are the same. The methods may be different. Are we ready to accept a different method in the thing that we used to do? And by the way, it's not just nationalization in that. It's not just somebody who's a different color or a different uh, different passport holder. This happens even if you're in the same country with the same passport, with the same everything. People are different. Principles are universal. I do think we have to be transparent about our motivations. Why are we nationalizing? Sometimes we're obligated. When the government kicks you out, you're obligated. Right? If you're the foreigner, you're not going to be there. There's no option in that. we heard a little bit about that uh, today already. But sometimes it's just because, well, it's inconvenient for me to still be there. It's probably not a good motivation. I don't think God usually works on inconvenience for us to transition things. So I think we have to be transparent about that. Is it really just, I don't want financial engagement anymore? We're kind of getting donor fatigue. We don't want to give anymore. Is that the motivation to nationalize? I would would say that's not a good one. Um, Is it because we don't really want to do collaboration? Often we think about nationalizing as, I'm in charge, now they're in charge. Notice I said they. That was intentional, not because I believe it, but that's what we often say. I'm in charge and they're in charge. Really, collaboration is what a body is about, right? Some, not everybody's an eye, not everybody's a foot. And if you're going to collaborate, it's messy. If you're anybody married... <laughs> I think that's all I have to say about collaboration being messy. Right? So that's, this is what it is. But that is what represents to the world the body of Jesus Christ, and we can be different than everybody else. Sorry, I get pretty passionate about this subject, or is it just we don't want to be involved anymore? The other aspect I think we sometimes forget is just because we started something or God started something doesn't mean he was intending it to be around forever. For such a time as this. That can be true of an organization as well. So just because the organization is no longer there, that doesn't mean that it was, should never have been there. Don't, don't take it that way. This is, again, just my thoughts here. There are some benefits sharing of the workload. But remember, these things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses and trust to reliable people. Not just anyone, reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Not everyone's fit to lead, that's true. And I would never, I I don't say this, but I'm just putting it up there for a little bit just to provoke it. Not just any national will do. I mean, it's a terrible statement. And I, I wouldn't say it as a belief, but I say it as that that is sometimes what we of people by default have essentially said. The goal is nationalization, so let's just put anybody who's got a different nationality than me into that role. A church leader must not be a new Christian. A new Christian might become proud and fall into sin which is brought on by the devil. Chris spoke a bit about some of maybe oh, we did it a little too soon. It's good to recognize that it's good to recognize that that happens. We all have done it. It happens. All right, so PACS challenges. And these are some things to think about as we discuss. We are a very Western-style program implemented in a very non-Western culture. That's complicated. That requires collaboration. It also requires, when you're implementing a program like that, I think Randy's situation is an interesting one. Uh, He said, "I can't do things that are going to cost money, so I got to find somebody, or or, so I got to do things in a way that somebody else can do them that aren't going to cost money." Often we've dumped money into situations, and then when we nationalize, we disappear, and the money doesn't go. And we say, "Oh, why did that fail?" Well, it's not because someone wasn't equipped; it's because they didn't have the same resources. So Randy has an interesting, great story, Randy, about how God did that for you. Uh, I will also say, if we're talking about hospitals, most mission hospitals have, have been put in the worst place that you would ever put for a good business model. You put them among poor, we put them among poor people, because that's where the needs are, and then we expect them to survive on their own. So there's, that, that's, there's some realism we need to think about here. And one of the other realities about, I'll say, nationalization is, at least in Africa, in my experience with our graduates, is their concern about who's going to educate my children. How are my children going to get educated? There's not a general concept of homeschooling like we may have in the U.S., maybe other places in Europe. It's just not there. And so how do you you overcome that? And does that mean, oh, well, they're not really committed to the mission? Maybe they're more committed to their family. And last I checked, the Scripture talks a lot about being committed to your family, but not so much the mission. So again, I, I'm saying these things more to provoke us into a conversation for the next 40 minutes. Um, not so much to say I've, I, I don't have it right. I can tell you that already, I don't have it right. I have some thoughts. You've heard them. Um, but just to wrap up this in summary again, lead us into some discussions. Uh, nationalization has nationalization has many different definitions. Be careful what you're saying. Biblical principles don't specifically support nationalization. I don't see that concept. Maybe I'm wrong. You can point out a scripture to me where nationalization is in scripture, but I, I, I haven't seen it. Um, or maybe I just don't remember it. Diversity in leadership does represent biblical principles. People who are watching can't understand how two different tribes, different cultures, different races, whatever it is, how can you work together? It's Jesus that makes it happen. It's an opportunity for the gospel to go out. And so we need to seek that messy collaboration, even when it's messy. Be realistic about who and how of your leadership. Thank you.
0: Okay, now it's your turn. Just a couple things. When you leave, uh, please put your evaluations in that red box if some of you are going to leave early. Remember, if you go out any of these three doors, there's an alarm and red lights and everything that go on, so go out that door. Uh, Okay, so now it's your turn, and so I'm going to ask the panel to come up. If you all want to stand up and stretch, please don't leave the room, but if you want to stand up and stretch for a minute while we set up here, uh, please feel free to do that. Yeah. Okay. Can <laughs>
3: <laughs> we turn this off? turn <laughs> off? <Okay. laughs>
0: Okay, everybody get a little stretch, and now it's your turn to uh, comment or ask questions. So I'm going to ask my photographer... Uh, we're going to be we're going to be out of range here. Do you want just the sound? Okay, very good. Okay, who wants to ask the first question? And I'm going to alternate between. I'm going to do it like an auction. Uh, here's going to be my spotter on this side, and I'll look on this side. So we'll alternate. So this lady here has a question, right, to start off with. Hey, that's my side. Nice spot. You. Oh, sorry. <laughs>
3: Nationals don't want to take over. Like, we recently had a conversation, and they're like, what well, you do is too hard. We don't want it. <laughs> so maybe there experiences or advice or things
7: you can talk about, and maybe that's, I don't know, it's us and them,
0: So I'll repeat your question. So the question is, what do you do when the Nationals don't want to take your position? And somebody, before we started, I was talking to asked the same question. So who wants to uh, start with this? And I'll hand this to you here.
1: I'll just say that I think in any work, be it medical in the hospital or be it you're a missionary doing church planning, your strategy, part of your strategy is to have an exit plan from the beginning. And, and if it's in place, it may be years down the road, but you kind of have this strategy. It may not work just quite like you planned, but they, they those locally with whom you're working, your colleagues, will know from the beginning that that is uh, the ultimate objective. And then maybe there won't be the pushback. Any comments for you? here? Kira, I think.
5: Okay. I, I was thinking about, Kira, if you think about any hospital, as Kira said, is in a place where it's not, it's, it's not set up to thrive that no national partner that I've known of said, oh, please, take away your subsidized physicians. Take away your subsidized surgeons because we've got people that we could pay and use their money to make that. So I've never seen an incentive where someone says, I want you to go away. It's more, I want you not to be in charge. Um, So I think that the answer still is you have to, to make a time for yourself and make everybody plan around that too.
4: I'll just add to that. I was going to say the same thing. Basically, if you're trying to transition to a model that's not reproducible locally, no one's going to really want to do it for the same reasons uh, he just said. So from the beginning, uh, in, in our case in that uh, instance in, in Asia that I was referring to, we were trying to make it locally reproducible. We got the long, wrong leader, but we were trying to make it so it wasn't dependent on foreign presence or money and all the rest, which was uh, that, then That's something that could have been done. So I think... Uh, you know you're all stepping into different situations uh, you, when you're serving the poor it's hard to do it with a, without help from the outside so there's kind of a conundrum there but uh, as uh, keeping it as locally sustainable as possible from the beginning makes it mu- taking over much more realistic from, from a local perspective okay so this side lady in the back here good uh, morning Is it- I don't know. I am Joanne Gobi. I am Ugandan. Born and raised in Uganda,
8: but now living in Minnesota. I work as a professor there. First, I would like to thank all of you so much for going. I want to thank your parents, your grandparents, or whoever sold the first seat. Thank you so much. I am a product of mission work, having met Jesus at a Christian school. And I thank you so much for what you do. I know it's not easy, but please keep doing what you're doing. I have too many questions I would like to speak. <laughs> First, I want to comment the brother right there in the middle in the yellow shirt, who said, try to keep it as sustainable as you can. There is a the ministry out in Grand Rapids, Michigan, called Partners. Partners. Business as partnership, business as ministry. So you know what they do, they try to set up these local businesses in these local communities and they're succeeding because when you think about it, everybody eats, everybody has light, everybody has something. They're buying it. So can we think that way, like you say, you know? And that really drives me to my real question. My real question is, I know you're all great people, Unfortunately, like the brother from Indonesia, his parents got sick, he had to come home, and we are supposed to take care of our parents. The question I have that I've struggled with, and I'm still struggling with, is leadership. It seems to me, and I know Christians are great people, and I'm one of them, and I think traditionally we've not taught ourselves to go into lobbying or advocacy things we love, like you want these Mission Hospitals to be functioning after 200 years. Trouble is we've not prepared ourselves to do it. We work so hard to train the leaders you're talking about, but we're not working from the legislature. We're not working from the top, where in Uganda they set bad laws. I know Uganda and I can talk about it because I'm used to talking about it. Um, But I think this is the same in most African countries. The bad guys are making the laws. They're not working for you. So what would it be for us, I'm an African and I talk about Africa a lot. What would it be for us as Christians to actually encourage leadership at the top? You know, we thank God for Kenya. They just did it. And they wanted to steal it from them. But the Lord came alongside us and we got that victory. I think they did a some victory in Malawi. I think there's a brother they are serving as a Christian. And he's like saying, no, 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 no. You don't need this. You don't need this. And the bad guys are trying to take these things away from them. So, going back to Ministers and Dr. way, I'm an anesthesiologist. <laughs> I'm not just walking alongside here. But I think these are the questions we must wrestle with. And for me now, I feel like God is saying can we, for me actually at least I'm looking for someone to mentor me, to do this job as a trainer back home, to to equip, to inspire, to encourage young people to go to lead, Because we cannot just wait for them. They won't do it. They're too selfish, they're greedy, they're just bad guys. So, (laughs) I'm sorry to say that, but um, I think it's the truth. And we need to have a a group of people who are equipping young leaders that you're not just teaching them to run the hospitals, but we are teaching them to actually... Go and be like Brother William Ruto from Kenya. Go get that gold job and be the one setting the rules. And for Pax, I thank you so much for what you do. Thank you so much for saying they and we. Because I think in Christ there is no they and there is no we. And what I say now is is the challenge we have as parents and grandparents. Like my children have been raised here in the church. So now if they bring me an American girl, what am I going to say? Am I say they or we? You know what I mean? Should I tell them to go look for an African girl? So these are the challenges of saying they and we. And I, I see a lot of Africans are marrying American kids. So be careful when you start saying they. And I say that my brother-in-law graduated from Burundi, of Africa. He's one of the first graduates either to go to me an American girl. Because I was like, oh! <laughs> But this is the day and the we. week. So in Christ, we are one. I think the
0: thing we must focus on is teaching leadership as part of these courses as the medical school. Sorry, I took so long. Thank, thank you for the question. So, does anybody want to talk about how we develop leadership that's interested in being a politician and making good laws at the top?
3: Okay.
6: Yeah, I think what's universally true is someone who's willing to do the work often gets put in a position of leadership. They don't always invite it, but they get <coughs> put there. Uh, one of our recent PAX grads in Tanzania is now the, what is he, regional director of health. No, he's the Medical, Medical Society of Tanzania mm-hmm. president, and he's like 30, because he was willing. And so part of what our, I think some of the training is people will model, will do what you model. That's true universally. You can say whatever you want, but they're not going to do what you say. People all everywhere, every culture, they're going to do what they see. That's what they're going to mimic. Everybody does that. And so as long as we're modeling the right things and we're not afraid to step into those difficult situations, then those that we're also training will, will also be confident and courageous to step into difficult situations of leadership and encouraging them that they can do it. The other aspect is when you provide care with excellence, People notice. You also become a target. We know that. You can become a target, but you also are. Eventually, you're noticed, and you get put in a position of leadership because you're willing to do the work. Thank
0: you. Anybody else want to make a comment? <clears throat> Nobody wants to touch that one.
2: No, I'll touch <laughs> okay. it. I'll, I'll touch it, Jim.
0: Oh, okay.
2: So at, uh, at Cologne University in Bunya, our faculty of in Congo, our faculty of theology has been addressing theological politics, or you know, political theology, I guess we'd call it that way, Theopolitics, Anyway, um, really loving to investigate things like um, Daniel and his role in government, Nehemiah and his role in government, and help the church not to fear going into the political realm. So I think that you have to have a church-based uh, solution to this problem. Thank you.
0: So, I, okay. Do you have anybody on your side? I'll, I'll Oh, you got
2: a comment? Yeah, yeah go ahead. Oh, go ahead. So, uh, just talking about the uh, leadership. This is just a fly in the wall story. Uh, what I see in Indonesia is the, the Christian community is very aware of this issue that we have to get Christians into government and uh, we need to prepare our people and when i got there 20 years ago i thought well that's is that really spiritual you know i was thinking but now as the years have gone by i see that every role every place is is needed and and i'll try and make this story short on my trip to indonesia in september i met the deputy minister of health by accident because i missed my first flight and I had to pay for the next flight. And I was a little upset with God, because he usually saves me from my own mistakes. That time he didn't, until I met the deputy ministers. Oh, that's why I missed the flight, the first flight. Uh, pragmatic Muslim. And he said, would you like your license back? So I'm not sure what God is up to with that one. I did uh, meet in with some of his uh, officers in in the government in Jakarta. And then uh, I said, what are they doing? What's going on? And then I said, I remember. Ten years ago, I had a GP, a Christian GP, trained at our hospital for three years. And then she said, well, I'm not going to go the mission route. I'm going to go into other things. She went with Doctors Without Borders for five years. Then she got a master's degree in public health in Japan. And then she came back and worked for UNICEF. And then the Minister of Health hired her into his office two years ago. And I called her and I said... Uh, I just met this guy. His name is Dr. Akuna. And uh, he, he says he's going to help me. And she says, oh, I'm his secretary. What do you need to know? So she's a person of God placed in a very high level, working for God, working for Christ in those places. So, Thank you. Hi, thank you very
3: much for the um, my question is, how do we, um, what is some of your experience in casting the vision, especially from more of a Western-based model, um, how do you
7: cast that vision with those that you're working among in the community, and how do they come and embrace that vision for themselves and maybe even change the vision of the
1: overall situation, clinic, practice,
0: however So the question is, how do we cast the vision to the, I'm afraid to say (laughs) 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 Uh, (laughs) nationalists? Particularly when we're
1: coming from a Western
0: point of view. So, who would like to touch that one? I would like
7: to touch it. Okay, go ahead. I'm touching it because um, I grew up in America as a child. Mm -hmm. My parents came here in the 60s. the war in Nigeria. But that, so we were actually brought here as refugees. So we came. And uh, then I went back to the Nigeria. And I went to medical school. And um, I've been a doctor now for 37 years. I worked in a mission hospital with missionaries. And um, the surgeon, he retired and came back to the U.S. I started bringing teams of doctors to West Africa to provide free care So I got very excited. I was in touch with him, so I started volunteering. For the first two years, I was I was the only black person on his team. You know, so I asked him one I "Me, mean, this doesn't make sense. You're coming to Africa to help Africa. Why don't we have?" And he said something that he said, "Blasphemy the this thing. Kind of he said, blacks don't do this kind of thing. Blacks don't volunteer. And I said, well, he said, I've been a in your country for 30 years. At that time, it was 30 years. And they just don't volunteer. And I said to him, I, I call him Pat because we're very present. These are the things I heard growing up in Nebraska. Seriously. <laughs> <laughs> I grew up in Nebraska. I was a little black. Black. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> stuff like, you know, you're black. Why you know, you know. And we were young, so it didn't make sense. Right? But they were sincere thinking that if you're black, you live on trees. You're from Africa, and things like that. So I'm saying that because Sanan so said to him, I, so I got inspired to start a medical mission, agency to encourage Africans to volunteer. That was the only reason I started it. To sort of. And um, strangely to tell you, we're, we're in Liberia right now. Many black people doing it. He meant well. He did, he, I mean... I don't know how to explain this because it inspired me to start it. Okay, and try to get nationalists to do it. I can understand the issues because I've been on both sides of it. the first, there has been an aid dependency because for years you come to Africa to help poor black Africans, so they look at themselves as what poor black Africans, you know, so they can't really what. They, it, it's, you know, so they think that they should always be aided okay, so we run an agency that encourages people to, to <laughs> volunteer doctors, nurses, pharmacists and when I go to other countries like we're in Liberia right now some of the Liberians feel that we should pay them to volunteer to work with us, and I said to them we started this to to, to to cure this mentality that you need to be paid we are paying our way to come from Nigeria to Liberia and want to volunteer with us. And reluctantly, they started doing it. Same thing happened in Malawi. So I'm trying to address the reality that um, some of the things that have been going on before we are born. Because truly, I mean, many people in the Western world, the first contact with, I mean, the first contact People have a last week, they came in as slaves, isn't it? And that's not changed for everybody, unfortunately. You know, so when you go as Christians to even try to help, there are cultural realities that you can't run away from. I and mean, we have to be very intentional. So here I was thinking that I was trying to do good by getting Africans to volunteer, but he done no, no no Africans and do that because that's how he sort of saw it, even though he was a missionary. Well that reversed because but like, he's dead now. By the time he was done, oh because this is great. And he quoted Second Timothy You know, because it, it, that's the way you should go, train people they can do what they're doing. And so it comes both ways. The, the 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 nationals have issues that you have to bring them up. Truly. Because that's just a mentality. Because they see white people as what well, superior to them. Because many people went to colonialism. And colonialism spoke to the fact that we are colonizing you. and So it's it's a reality that we need to, every time you go to help in a third world country, (coughs) you have to be very intentional about bringing up leadership. Very intentional because some of them will not accept to be. Because they always feel that you can always do it better. And so I like what you said. You have to have a transition plan from day one. And if COVID has thought of anything, it's thought of that nothing is predictable anymore. So you have to, with everything you're doing, I mean, I've, I've been running it not-for-profit now for 31 years as a person. And I want to be talking about the five, last five years. How does it happen when I'm no more there? You know, at 60-something, you have to start thinking like that. And it's, it's being intentional about it. I've been very privileged to be here. Thank you. sorry. Thank you.
6: <laughs> I got the sense that actually behind your question is how come there's many people that I've tried to encourage to do this and they don't follow what I'm doing, right? I mean, is that, am I right? There's a little bit behind the question that you have 10 people that you've trained and only one of them stays, right? Is that kind of the idea? Like I I only get one person out of 10 to catch the vision. Is that kind of behind your question maybe a little bit?
3: Yeah, how
7: how, how did we share a Western vision with a different perspective because they're living in that culture, how do we adjust that vision
6: then and maybe collaborate on it? Yeah, so I think we have to have realistic expectations. If you took 100 U.S. physicians and shared the vision, how many would actually catch it? Not many. Not many, right? And so humans are humans. I'll come back to that all the time. People are people. I don't care what nationality, I don't care what culture, I don't care any of that. People are people. So if you share it with 100 Whatever nationality it is you're serving among, not that many are going to catch it. That's just a reality. In terms of the collaboration, how do you catch the vision back and forth? Um, I think Randy expressed it extremely well. There's a humility aspect. You have to demonstrate it, and you also have to expect it. Don't tolerate it in someone else that you're with, regardless of their fellow missionary or... National, I'll say. Someone that you're... It doesn't matter. Don't tolerate that. Because if you accept that, then you're working in a situation that collaboration can't happen.
4: I, I would add something to that if I could. I think you say, you know, conferring a Western vision. I, I want to use Keir's division between universal principles and methodology. Uh, the, the vision is to spread the kingdom of God and to serve the poor or the needy or be a witness or whatever. Our Western methods may be different than local methods, but the vision at the core should be the same if it's, a, it's part of the church. You know? uh, so if that, uh, if that principle can be conveyed, uh, the methods may change locally uh, where, where you're going to match the economic and social realities, but if the, if the core nucleus of the principle of the vision is, is passed on, you're going to get a better response it will be more understandable. If they think they have to re- replicate the Western methodology, that's a problem. If they think, if they don't understand it's the vision, the core vision, the principles, the biblical mandates, that's a different issue.
1: Yeah, I would just with the biblical mandates and the basis of the vision. Um, and, and I know when we actually had our transition, uh, though I was still the CEO, of course everyone else was uh, Indian. And we totally reassessed vision, mission, and core values. And it all came from them, and it ended up in the same place. It, it didn't change, basically, but it was theirs. Okay, yes.
3: Collaboration and I know that we're avoiding like fascism and nationalism, but how do you consider those dynamics at play? And are there like key traits in programming that promote the collaboration and sensitivity
0: towards power dynamics and post-colonial? So the question is, uh, what about the power dynamics in a post-colonial situation? And I think it's a very good question.
6: Clearly, I'm happy to talk about anything. That doesn't mean I know anything, but I'm happy to have a thought on it, especially if no one else is willing to wade into this, that difficult, uh, could be a challenge. Like most things, just be honest. Acknowledge them. This is my culture. This is what I'm used to. This is what I do. You do that. I think this. And when I do this, what do you think? How does that come across to you? I think you really have to acknowledge it. And and when you present that, being very humble about, I'm observing this, this is what I think, am I wrong? Am I completely lost? And I've done that before, and more often than not, the answer is, you have no idea what you're interpreting there. I'm completely wrong in my interpretation, but I've learned something by asking the question. Instead of saying, well, I don't know if I should, and we tiptoe around, and we don't ask, and we don't say anything, and then we go home and go, oh, I don't know, that was so stressful, that was terrible. Well, yeah, it was, but you have to be willing to ask and say something and say, okay, that didn't feel very good. I'm not sure why. Can you help me understand what just happened? I I, I found for us in in Gabon, we had a number of residents that were not Gabonese, and it was safe for them to make an assessment about the Gabonese culture that probably also reflected similar to their culture where maybe a Gabonese wouldn't talk about their own culture in that way, and so finding people that you can be honest and transparent with, and say things like your friend said, although I don't think your friend would have said that to many people that black people don't volunteer. Is that what he said, or Africans, or whatever he said? Blacks. I mean, blacks. Yeah. Okay. No,
7: said even black Americans don't
6: volunteer. Okay. So black just black blacks don't volunteer. I, not many people are going to be willing to say that. So but. Thirty years ago, but he, even then, he, he had a good. You had a good relationship that he could say that. So the relational foundation and trust is extremely important. Extremely important.
4: Just another quick comment: <clears throat> there are power dynamics in every culture. It's not just uh, going to another culture. When we, uh, here in America, as medical professionals, there's a power dynamic in it with us and our patients. And some people are intimidated by doctors and they say, well, whatever you're the doctor, whatever you say, I'll do it. And no, 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 we're going to have a little collaboration here. And some will say, come in, address me by my first name and never met me before, and then my, my MD doesn't matter to, at all to them. So it, it does, um, it's humility, it's uh, respecting other people, as made in the image of God. Uh, you know, sometimes when we go to other cultures where colonialization or any kind of mismatch in authority or power has been present, uh, you might be put up on a pedestal a bit. But if you're honest with people and you let them know you and you treat them with respect, soon you're going to be off that pedestal. <laughs> uh, and you may even go down a notch because you're not what they expected. Uh, but eventually they'll become a parody in terms of one person to another and the honesty can be there. Um, but going cross culture just adds, uh, you know, here's maybe a medical dynamic or maybe an authority or political dynamic that creates that power Difference. You're just simply adding a cultural, maybe a political, another political dynamic, maybe race. But they're just power dynamics. You just have to be you know, honest and uh, transparent and uh, speak the truth to each other. Do okay. you have anybody over here care?
6: Your side's next. Yeah, so Dr. Naylor talked about the importance of mission and vision and the transfer of that to future leadership. How have the rest of you dealt with that issue? I've seen
0: a number of mission organizations that struggle with mission and vision and seen
6: it drift. And in your transitions, how have you been able to keep a strong mission and vision, especially from a
0: Christian's or spiritual focus in a non-Christian environment?
2: I can can speak to that. So the process of transition started... Way before I came, and it took me four to five years to really begin to just begin to understand the dynamics that were going on. At that point, the, the top leadership was, was brothers, my, my Indonesian brothers were in charge, and, and I came along underneath. I was uh, working with them, and uh, in that, um, in handing off the vision. The, the leadership that, that was there when I arrived was really at a crossroads and saying we don't know if we can do this mission thing because it's not sustainable. So there was a financial question. How are we going to pay the bills when, when these foreigners are gone and keep this place running in the middle of nowhere serving the poor? So uh, maybe we should go you know, completely secular and, uh, and we're, we're paying four salaries for full-time evangelists. What are they producing you know they're not producing financial revenue, and so all those questions came up, and and uh, you just wrestle through it and and ask, well, what, where do you, where do you see God leading you? Where do you want to go? When you make the decision about uh, about paying extra for overnight call, which was came up, you know we should pay the doctors extra for overnight call. That's why it's hard to recruit. Okay, well, if we pay the doctors, well, what's, what about the nurses? Yeah. They should get paid too overtime. And you start to raise all these questions. Well, then who's going to pay the bill? Uh, when we're going to send the ambulance to the city for a referral, then we're going to charge, we're going to pay a bonus to the driver. Who's going to pay the bonus? It always gets billed to the patient. If the patient has no money, then you don't refer. You don't send them in. So you wrestle with those issues. I didn't know which way it was ago, going to go. At that point, the director really seemed like he was going to... Uh, Change the whole mission and vision. I said, I'll give you one more year of my time to help you go where you want to go. I will follow you. I'll give you support if that's really the vision God has given, even though it's not where I want to be. And after that, I mean, once you transition, uh, I'll move on. Well, that didn't turn out. Uh, He ran into trouble after about a year and resigned. So then the next director was appointed, and I said, What do you want to do? He said, and the, the other director had already started turning the, the ship this way. He said, we're, we're back this way. Back to the old vision. That's why I am here. That's why I came 15 years ago. That's why I finished my specialty. That's why I'm back. The gospel, the poor. Said, How are you going to pay for that? I don't know. So, uh,
3: <laughs>
2: yeah, so I think it's, it's back to, to working with the people that, that God has given you and then seeking to, to uh, collaborate and where does God lead? Thanks.
0: Yeah. Thank you. Just a minute. So we have this uh, question that came in online from Keith. S. how do you train doctors in a setting where, if the doctor being trained and is being asked to follow Christ, could be persecuted? That might be a good one for you, Chris, since you worked in those kinds of situations.
4: Well, you train them to follow Christ. You know. Um, we may be facing persecution in this country. I mean, you know, persecution goes wherever Christians go. Uh, It's true. uh, In countries where the majority population is not Christian, the likelihood is much greater, and uh, it can be much more severe uh, more quickly. So I'm not downplaying that. But, uh, you you know, to say I won't uh, disciple you or I won't share the gospel with you because you might be persecuted is to say I'm not going to share salvation with you. Uh, i 'm not going to share the the, gospel, the good news uh, what, that, that God wants us to be sharing, our whole reason for being in those countries, so yeah, you have to be careful, you have to be um, wise as serpents and, and harmless as doves, but you still that 's the whole purpose of going to these places is to raise up the church locally. Uh, we did work in Afghanistan and and, uh, all of our trainees with one exception came as a Muslim. The one that came was already a Christian, didn't want anyone to know about it and he asked us not to share that. We honored that request. One other person became a Christian through our ministry uh, somewhere down the road when he Went for training to be, uh, for faculty training in Kenya. I forget which mission. It might have been AIM, I forget. But he was staying with a local missionary and he became a believer there. He, he put two and two together what he saw with the missionaries and what he heard clearly with this guy out of, his, out of his context. He became a believer. And I won't go into the whole story. It's a kind of long and winding one. But going back to the idea of holding things lightly, you know, our goal for going to Afghanistan was indeed to help raise the level of health care I mean, and all that. But ultimately, it was to share the gospel. And we did train local uh, uh, graduates for a program to be faculty. They were faculty members, and they were moving up in, in their uh, responsibilities. But when we left, uh, there, was not a, there had not been a great turning to Christ. We were planting seeds, and that's the way we looked at it. We were f- sowing, we were planting seeds, we were plowing the ground, getting the rocks out of the ground so that maybe stereotypes would come down. They could see pe- Christians as people that were caring and all the rest. There was not a great turning to Christ from our work, Hopefully the seeds will produce later on. And uh, the training program we had just went up in smoke, so to speak. And, um, and it's, in a sense that's okay because that wasn't our ultimate goal is to, to leave a training program. Uh, the, the ones who are trained, there are about 80 of them, they're still practicing. The level of care is better than it was before. That's good. But you hold it lightly and you keep the main vision, the main vision. Uh, the main things, the main things. Uh, and, uh, trust God for the rest.
0: Yeah, I think the last part, trusting God for the rest, is really important because you never know where God will use one of those people in some way in the future. I think we got time for one more question. This young lady here.
8: Yeah, so my question really is around finance, and I know it has been addressed in different ways by the panel, but I think in terms of, like, you know, you mentioned having an exit strategy right from the beginning. In terms of planning you know it's, I think finance is always it really does come down to finances how the sustainability so in terms of um, a ministry how do you and, 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 and transitioning to national leadership how do the, the role of finances how do you train or bring up leaders so that they can be able to run their hospitals or their agencies in terms of finance because a lot of especially in a missionary run organization, Finances often come from the West. But how is that addressed right from the beginning or during
0: transition or as you're thinking of that transition to national education? So the question, as I would put it, is that how do you make that transition in leadership and with finances? Because finances many times come from the West. Uh, and so how do you get over that?
1: We, uh, at the time of transition, uh, our operating budget, approximately half of it was coming from overseas. And so we, had, we were told we had five years, and it was on a declining scale, so we knew every year it would be less. And uh, we immediately set out to totally change many things. Uh, for one thing, we realized that we had to increase the number of paying patients to cover the cost of the poor patients. The second thing, we had to raise money. We couldn't be dependent on mission board funds just coming, uh, and it needed to be raised maybe in the west, but also locally in the, in the community. So that change uh, began to happen, and we had set targets year by year we had to achieve, and we did.
0: Any comments? We've got time for one more question. Oh, well, you already had one. <laughs> <laughs> okay. She's <laughs> great lady here. I have a it's question good. for <laughs> Randy
1: Bond. I want you to go. I, I don't know. <laughs> um, how did, you were talking about when facing African realities that you decided to focus on what you could do. And
3: I wanted to know, how did you figure out what things you could do?
5: Um, Because I got very frustrated being blocked the things I couldn't do. Um, I would attempt to do many things and be told, you can't do that. (coughs) I would try to hire somebody, and they would say, no, we can't hire a person. But if I can pay them myself, no, you can't do that. Um, You know, if I, I want to... Have this. I want to hire this person. No, it has to be through the system. They have to go through the university comptroller. You cannot pay this professor directly to teach the course that everybody has to have to graduate that hasn't been taught. Um, so I, I learned quickly what I couldn't do, and I could do things that could be done um, in that culture. So I had to. It, it just really meant changing who I am to be. Um, able to function in a way that would be functioning there because I would like i I am too important not to have a secretary. Why should I write my own letters? Why should I go and do my own copying? Why should I you know have to do this? I could buy a special chalkboard. i don 't have to have a chalkboard i I, I, I could do better than this um, but i couldn't I was blocked because that was not the system, and I you know i couldn't I, I did buy my own copier. I mean, my own—I—I I could printer, but I couldn't buy a copier, um, you know. But I could pay for myself at five cents a copy across the street. Um, so there are things. I mean, I had some workarounds, but the bottom line is, I had to work as if a person who was not me worked in the same position. So, and I had to create structures that would be workable for the person who would come after me, and that was God's blessing for them and the transition. Because if I had left it where I had a, a team of people and had paid professors directly, my withdrawing would make it collapse. But because I, you know, I worked out the system and I worked within the system and I had people that would collaborate with me to work through contacting hospitals, it worked in the long run.
0: Okay, I'm sorry we're out of time. Uh, I want to thank all of you for coming. Please fill out your evaluation form and leave it with the young lady over there that's got the red box. Uh, Thank you for coming.